in Mark 11, but uh, last week Jay preached through this section on Mark 11, verses 12 through 25, where Jesus comes into the temple. Uh, He came to a place called Bethany, which was known as the House of Figs. Uh, He cursed a fig tree, and then he moved into the temple where he found a group of Pharisees selling goods within the temple, and he flips the tables over. Uh, He shows some righteous anger, and he points to some things that are going on there that are wrong. They've turned God's house of worship, the the house of prayer, into a, a den of robbers. And as they come out of the temple, and as Jesus has been teaching them, and fear has come upon the crowd and the people, they go again into Bethany with the fig tree that is withered away. And uh, we arrive in our text this morning in Mark 11, verse 27. Uh, and it reads like this. And as he was talking or walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing th- these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I want to tell you the story of a church. The story of a church that started really strong and was pursuing the Lord. This church was uh, in America. A church had a goal to reach 2,500 people by the year 2005. And they started a group of guys, three different guys that were really good friends, and they joined together in seminary, and they were learning uh, what it looked like to serve the local church. And they grew in their passions for one another, and one of them was really gifted with administration. Uh, He could put organization and structure into different pieces and plays, and he was brilliant with his organizational leadership. He was the guy behind the scenes. Another guy was really good at teaching. He loved to teach the Word of God, and he loved to communicate, and he loved to see people get those moments where they understood the Scripture. And then there was another guy who was a a beautiful businessman, and he knew all the things that it took to put all these pieces in play and fundraise to see these things happen. These guys made what was called the dream team. They got together, and their goal was, after they had served in, in local church settings on their own, to start a new church and start a new work in a new area. And so they went to their local city, they started this new gathering of people, and they started a Bible study. They started Bible studies in their homes, and one Bible study met in in the first guy's house, and they had 60 people come into this house, and it was packed, and they were singing songs, and they were praising God, and they were reading the Bible, and they were praying together. And, And then one of the other guys started a home Bible study, and they had 30 or 40 people come together, and they were singing songs, and they were praising God, and they were lifting their voices to one another, and they were teaching each other the scriptures. And then the third guy started a house Bible study, and they had 20 people come, and 20 people sing songs and praise the Lord and read the scriptures. 
And then they decided that they were going to start their first local service together in an elementary school. They rented out the school and they gathered together. And they started with about 125 people. And that first week, they worshiped the Lord and they sang songs. Songs that were powerful and moving. Songs that really grabbed hold of their heart. And one guy came up and he communicated the truth of the scripture in a relevant way in 20 minutes. And then the next guy came together and he put all the fundraising pieces so that they had really cool technology and great TVs and a great place for people to come and connect. And then the next week, they gathered again for worship. But this time, they saw a dip in their attendance. It went down to 80 people. And then week three, it went down to 60 people. And then they decided that they were going to launch full-time and be a real church in their city because they wanted to make a difference. And they saw tons and tons of people come, and over that first year, they grew from just 60 or so people to 150 people. And they praised the Lord for their increase in numbers. But as they increased in numbers, they continued to work through what it looked like to have church and what they were looking for. And their mission was to reach more people with the good news of Jesus. And by the second year, they had grown from 150 up to 250 people. Again, exponential growth. And in the third year, they grew from 250 to 500 people. And they were gathering in this place. And their goal was to to help people to come to know Jesus. And they were reaching non-believers. And by the fourth year, they had reached about 1,000 people. And then they sat together at their leadership table and they said, we want to be a church that will reach 2,500 people by the year 2005. And so they launched a second service and then a third service and then a fourth service and they continued to grow in people with this goal of having people come to know Jesus. Friends, this church started on a really good note but it eventually led to a road that was no longer healthy. Their goal was to see people come to know Jesus and to get engaged in the scripture and prayer and in real community together. Beautiful note. But where they lost their sight was now they wanted more width than depth. They reached a larger net of people without reaching a people. They were focused on a number more than a group of individuals and a group of collected Christians. They were focused on music and what their screens looked like and what their appearance was like and not the conviction of growing in Scripture. And then the lead pastor of the church sat down with the leadership team. And he sat down and he said to them, I think that we've been doing this wrong. And they heard one response, one response that is very familiar to most of us who have lived through church experience. We haven't done it that way before. We have not done it that way before. And he said, you know, I think we started with some really good goals and some of our heart is still really good in its intention. We want to reach people for Jesus. But what kind of people are we making? We're more concerned about the next person and we're not concerned about the person that's in front of us. Mark Dever, a pastor in Washington, D.C., says 
that if Christians want to say how people ought to live, they ought to have something to say about how they do not live. Yet I worry that many churches approach discipleship in such a way that they are pouring water into leaking buckets. And the water is expending out of the sides. And all the attention is being given to what is poured in, with no attention given to what is retained. This church became a church where there was lots of water with leaking holes. And there was no retention. And what it came down to was that these guys had figured out such a good system that they had believed in themselves so much in their own skills and their own gifts and their own abilities that they forgot who was in charge of the church. Friends, this morning we come to the scripture because Jesus is in charge of the church. And we encounter Jesus with this group of the Pharisees in which they come to the surface after Jesus has done this very big public thing in the temple. And Jesus enters with his authority. And Jesus says the Son of God has authority over temple, creation, and the kingdom and glory of God. And so this morning, as we approach God's word, the big idea is that Jesus' authority is from God, and his mission is to save people. And this, my friends, is the message that we need to hear as the church this morning. In verses 27 and 28, it tells us that they came to Jerusalem, and as Jesus was walking into the temple, the chief priests come... And they say to him, who gave you the authority to do these things? In this story that I just shared about this church, as the lead pastor sat at the leadership table, the response he got from the rest of his team, an associate pastor, a student pastor, a discipleship pastor, a worship leader, all of these big people, their response was the same. We've never done it that way before. And the the Pharisees come to to Jesus after he has totally ransacked the temple and flipped everything over and with his authority has said, no, this is what the house of God is to be. And the Pharisees say to Jesus, who do you think you are? By what authority are you doing these things? What makes you think that you can come into our church and flip all the tables? What makes you think that you can come into this place and tell us that we've been doing it wrong for this many years? But we need to see the group of the Pharisees that are here. Now, it's likely that some of these Pharisees were going about the system in such a way that they had figured out what they needed to do so that they didn't have to work too hard, but that they were able to walk in what they wanted to do. Oh, okay, I can put my energy and effort here. That's good. I don't have to do all much of that there. But at least on the outside, I look like I'm fitting the picture. There was also probably some Pharisees who were zealous, zealous to the law. They had lived by the rules. They had known what their structure was and what they needed to do to walk in holiness and be recognized by people. And so they did all the right things. They said all the right things. And eventually their hearts got so hard that they became calloused. And they just started working through the motions. 
And then there was probably a group of Pharisees who were really genuine, who really wanted to honor God and live by the law. But they were offended because some new kid came in, and he flipped the tables. And he said that they were doing everything wrong. And so their question is, what makes you think that you can do this? And if we look into our own hearts and our own setting, we can see one big truth about people. The truth about people is we want to be in control. We want to have the power. We don't want somebody else to tell us what to do or how to do it. Right? We don't want somebody who's in the finance department coming into our workplace where we're working on engineering and saying, hey, here's how you be a better engineer. That offends us. We don't want the person to come in who is fresh out of college or seminary, who has been taught and trained, to come into a church that's been established and doing its things for some time and say, hey, this is really what the heart of the Bible is. That can get offensive. But why are those two things offensive? Not because of the material, and it's not offensive because of the things that they're saying. It's offensive because it pokes at our own pride. It pokes into our hearts and exposes the truth that we want to be in control. And it turns the gear. And it reveals to us that we want some power. But the key truth this morning that we need to hear is that Jesus is in control, and he has power. The Bible says that by the word, he spoke creation into existence. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the radiance and glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, that even by his word, he upholds the universe. I want you to see for a moment that picture, that Jesus, by his very words, holds together all of the universe, all of creation. And here these Pharisees address him and say, hey, we're in control. We have been voted into these positions. We have the rank. We have the precedence. We have the power. Who do you think you are? But they don't recognize one thing. They're speaking to the Son of God. In Acts chapter 20, the Bible tells us that Jesus has purchased the church by his very own blood. That he has died for the church and that the church is his. But the Pharisees didn't know that Jesus was the one who ruled the church, ruled the temple. And they're upset because some guy came in and made a ruckus. And he made a ruckus in such a way that he pointed out their one fault, that they had begun to worship themselves more than they worshiped God. And this truth stuck home right in their hearts. And this is one of those moments in Scripture, friends, that Jesus confronts the Pharisees with some boldness. And in verse 29, it says, I will ask you one question. One question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. He says, I'm going to ask you one thing, and I want you to answer me. 
where they come and they say to Jesus, who do you think you are? Why are you doing these things? What gives you the power to do this? He responds with, I'll ask you one question. Oh, man, parents are in the room thinking, I've done that with my kid, right? (laughs) I've been on the other side of that table where dad says, I'm going to say one thing, right? And you better listen. And Jesus takes the moment and he says to the Pharisees, one question, answer me. I want your honesty. And in verse 30, he, he poses the question, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Twice in two verses, he says, answer me. He poses the question, answer me. Before the question, I'm going to ask you this, you better answer me. And then see how Jesus poses the question. He does not leave a lot of room for error here, friends. He says, it's either this or this. And what does John the Baptist have to do with any of these things? John the Baptist has been beheaded. He's dead. But what we find out from the beginning of Mark is that John the Baptist was the one who came to prepare the way for the Messiah. He was the Elijah that the Israelites had hoped for, that the Jewish people looked for, the one that would pave the way to bring the Messiah and bring the glory of God's kingdom. And John proclaimed, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and be baptized. Turn from your sin and be baptized. Be washed and made pure. And in the Gospel of John, John the Baptist looks to Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. And and John proclaims that Jesus is this man who will bring a cleansing. And the people believe in John and they respond to John and they trust in him. And in John 3, we hear that the people are interacting in such a way that they have now listened to John's message that Jesus is the Lamb. And now they're following Jesus. And John's disciples come to him and they say, well, John, all of our friends, all of our people, they're running away. What do you want us to do? And his answer is, he must increase and I must decrease. This isn't about me. This is about the Lamb of God. And he shows humility in an example. John confronts sin. He confronted the sin of Herod and Herodias. He confronted them in such a way that it ended in the end of his life. And the people believe and the people proclaim that John the Baptist has been sent by God. But the Pharisees are upset because somebody flipped the table. You came into our place and you flipped the table. And Jesus responds with, is this from heaven or is this from man? Answer me. See, the first problem with the Pharisees is that they didn't want to respond to the authority of Jesus. The second problem with the Pharisees is that they were not willing to examine the evidence that was before them. Verses 31 and 32, we see this. It says that they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe in him? What shall we say from man? 
They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. So they have the evidence in front of them. They see the question that Jesus has posed, and they see that there are really two answers to this, that it's either from heaven or it's either from man. It's one or the other. It can't be something else. And they look at the evidence and they say, oh boy, it looks like this. Well, it could also be this, but if we say that, then we're going to get in trouble. Now, friends, let's think about the way that this pastor approached his leadership team. Friends, I think that we've been doing this wrong the whole time. Some of our intentions were right, but I think we've been going at this the wrong way. We haven't done it that way before. The next step in that pastor's process of helping his church to go from unhealthy to healthy was to create a survey. And his survey was answered by over 1,000 people, 1,497 people to be exact. And from those 1,400 people, their membership roles said that there were 500 members of the church. 800 people identified as members. They didn't know what it meant to be a member of the church. When it asked them if they were a seeker or if they were a Christian or a mature Christian, more often than not, unbelievers answered that they were Christians. And more often than not, the members of the church, the mature Christians, called themselves seekers. And there were glaring spiritual concerns that came through this survey. People didn't know where the church was headed. They didn't even know what the church gathered for. They didn't even know why they existed. But they knew one thing, they wanted to reach people. And so the pastor sat down with his leadership team and he said, I don't have all the answers, but I think that we ought to change some things. And they started to work together as a team as they worked through these results and as they sat in and and figured out some of the things that were happening, they decided to take some steps. Some steps to shore up what their membership looked like. Steps to shore up what it, it actually looked like to become a Christian. And these steps led to some really good things, but it also led to an exodus of people out the door. They went from 2,500 people down to 1,000 people in one year. But those 1,000 people that were in the church knew who they were in Christ. They knew what was going on. They knew what their goal was. They examined the evidence, and they looked and they said, here are some things that we need to change. The Pharisees, while they could choose if this was from heaven or from man, they had one problem, and it was fear. When we look at their response in verses 31 and 32, Verse 31 says this, If we say from heaven, he will say, then why don't you believe in him? Friends, if we don't respond to who God is and what he has done, 
we are going to stand before him. We all will stand before the Lord one day where he will look at us and say, why should I let you into my kingdom? And we're going to have to answer. But they were afraid to admit that they were wrong. They knew what Jesus would say in response. Well, if this is who God is, this is what he has done, then why haven't you followed him? Because I want to be in control. I want to have power. I want to have victory. If this is who God is, then why are we not responding? It's because of our pride. The pride of our hearts grows such a way that it grasps our hearts in such a strong capacity that we are not even able to recognize that there's sin before us. I love that scripture in Matthew 7 where it says, the way to destruction is wide, but that the gate to eternal life is narrow. The first thing is that they didn't want to listen to God. And secondly, their answer in verse 32 is, if we say from then, the people will revolt. If we don't say that John is someone who he was, the people are going to flip on us. And this is something we can face as a church. If we pursue biblical health, if we pursue what it means to be a church that's centered on the gospel, there are likely times where people are going to leave. They're going to revolt. And the Sanhedrin were afraid that the people would throw them over and and chaos would ensue the city. And that shows you what kind of emphasis John had, what kind of impact he left with these people. It shows you that he was indeed a person who the Lord had used. And they decided that their answer to Jesus would be this in verse 33. We do not know. We do not know. This was their hardness of heart on display. Here's the truth. Here's what we we can see from the evidence. Here is what is real, is that God has been at work. And if we tell the people that God has not been at work, they're going to cause chaos. So it's better for us to look at this and say, we're ignorant, we don't know. What happened? It's like when you you walk into the kitchen and your kid's about to put their hand on the stove and you're like, what are you doing? I don't know, right? My brother's a teenager now and there are times where he gets into conflict and he has to be uh, talked to. And like, why did you do that? He's, I don't know. Right? Well, you knew that this was right and that this was wrong. Why did you do that? I, I don't know. We've been in those situations where we have seen right and wrong, and we've tried to slide into our own thing that will kind of like protect us and make us feel like we get what we want. And then when we get caught, we say, here's right and wrong. Oh, escape both. I don't know. And Jesus sees right through these guys. 
And he responds in the rest of verse 33, and he says, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. They come to Jesus ready to stump him, and they're like, who do you think you are? You've flipped the tables in our temple. You have looked at us and said that we've been doing it wrong the whole time. Who do you think you are? What authority do you have in this place? And Jesus, as the Son of God, says to them, answer me this. Through what you have seen, through what has happened, through John the Baptist, through what has happened even as we look forward to next week, as Jesus enters the city, of Jerusalem through Bethpage, and the people cry, Hosanna! Hosanna, our King! Blessed be God in the highest! As Jesus looks at these Pharisees, He says, you have the evidence in front of you, and you can say it's the kingdom of God, or you can be ignorant and say that it's the kingdom of man. You can avoid all of it and choose your own response, and that's exactly what they do. And Jesus looks at them and says, you want to know what authority I've got? It's not for you to know. And we should be reminded of Mark chapter 4 where Jesus teaches the disciples about the parables. And from Isaiah, we hear that there are going to be some who will hear, but it will fall on deaf ears. That there will be some who will see, but they will be blinded. That some will not believe. And this is what sin does to us. It deafens our ears and it blinds our eyes so that we cannot see God in front of us. But the power of the gospel is is so large that it takes blind people and makes them see and deaf people and makes them hear. Jesus looks out to the sea and he says, peace be still. He looks at the lame man who has not been able to walk from childhood and he says, get up and walk. He goes into the temple, which has become a den of robbers, and he flips the table and he says, this ought to be a house of prayer. The power of the gospel is so strong that it can take a church that's heading in a direction this way towards death and bring it back to life. Friends, we can celebrate that news. A church that was headed this way and God is bringing it. He's dragging us back into life. And it all starts when we get the person of Jesus right. Because what Jesus has done, who he is, and what he has said really matters. So what does it look like for us to respond to the authority of Jesus? Well, praise the Lord, we're not a church of 2,500 people. That would be a lot of work. (laughs) A lot of different things going on. But we are a church, a church of God's people, and we'll be as big as he wants us to be, or as small as he wants us to be, for that matter, too. Because the church isn't about a group of numbers. The church is a group of people, a group of Christians who gather together to proclaim the gospel, to practice the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. The church is a group of people who come together to live as the family of God. 
That is what the church is. The church is not a group of numbers. The church is a group of Christians. And we exist to proclaim the gospel. We exist to practice those ordinances. We exist to live together as a family, albeit a messy one. And we respond to the authority of Jesus by responding to one another, to take the time to correct false teaching. The reality is is that each one of us comes into the room this morning from a different background. And our goal as we gather together is to empty our background and to look into the Scripture. To look at what God has done, what He has said, and who He is. And to build from there. So we correct false teaching. That's how we can respond to the authority of Jesus. We can also respond to the authority of Jesus by challenging each other in our pride. You're saying it this way, or you're doing this thing, and you're saying that you want to honor Jesus, but that looks like it's a little bit more about you. Those are hard conversations to have, but necessary conversations to have. One of the ways that we respond to the authority of Jesus is by proclaiming the gospel. I've been taking this class on evangelism and discipleship through Midwestern Seminary. And I was annoyed by this. I have to submit four reports of evangelism contact throughout this class, right? So, like, I have to fill out this kind of, like, sheet of, did you share the gospel with somebody, and what did that look like? I was kind of annoyed. I'm like, I don't want to check off the box. But I'll tell you what, I've done two of them now, and starting to look at my third, and I'm not thinking about checking off the box anymore. I'm looking and seeing opportunities as I sit in the coffee shop or out in the barn or here at the church and say, I can tell somebody about the goodness of God and the good news of Jesus Christ. I can tell them about the hope that we have. There's an opportunity in this. And I can tell you there have been plenty of times at the coffee shop where I've heard people speaking about spiritual things and I had just wanted to be like, oh, don't say anything, don't say anything, don't say anything. And I'm like, oh, okay, i got to say something. Or the times that I've been just working on something and somebody has called. said, I'm, I'm going through something right now. Can you pray with me? We respond to the authority of Jesus when we recognize that the gospel is not about us. We exist to proclaim it so we can love others well. We respond to the authority of Jesus by loving God, which means that we grow in our affections for Jesus. Any of you Jonathan Edwards fans? Okay, anybody even know who Jonathan Edwards is? Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Jonathan Edwards was a pastor here in Connecticut who was known as somebody who brought revival He was a major part of the Great Awakening, and it was actually really funny because it wasn't even his intention. He heard guys that came in and spoke with great passion and zeal and wanted to move people, and he thought that that was somewhat foolish. He thought people needed to hear the Scripture. Edwards wrote this book on the movements of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit has worked through revival, and one of the things that he says about 
a true movement of the Holy Spirit is that people are truly being used by God when they are growing in their affection for Jesus. Growing in an affection for Jesus. That made me think, am I reading my Bible because I love God? Am I praying because I love the people that I'm praying for and I love the Lord? Is this out of an affection or is this out of an obligation? And I pose that question to you this morning. Are you running after the Lord out of affection or out of obligation? And I throw a caveat in there and I say this. Don't be so motivated by your emotion and your feeling. Our emotions and feelings can lead us down dangerous paths. But there is nothing wrong with loving Jesus more. Do you love Jesus? If we love Jesus, we will take seriously our call to live holy, to live set apart for God, to live in obedience of the scripture. So we can respond to the authority of Jesus by loving others and loving God. We can respond to the authority of Jesus by confronting idols. Anything that you worship above God in his place is an idol. And sometimes that can look like materialism. Sometimes that can look like hobbies. In this situation in Mark 11, it was because of power and influence and rank. They worship their position more than they worship the Lord. Maybe a sneaky idol that could exist in the church is this. It's the idol of, look at what we've done. Versus the idol, or not the idol, versus the biblical response of, look at what God has done. Look at what we've done versus what, look at what God has done. Friends, look at the history of this church. 302, 303 years ago now, God started a movement in Hebron with the gospel. And today we gather because God is still at work. Look at what God has done. Look at what God has done over the past year. Look at what he's doing through our D groups. Look at what he is doing in our church. Look at what he's doing with our kids. Look at what he's doing in Hebron. God is not done. He has work for us. But let's not think that we've done it. Let's give the credit and the glory to God. Look at what he has done. And all of this can be motivated by grace. The only reason that we're able to respond to the gospel is because God is gracious to us. When the, the, the Pharisees go into the temple and they were like, Jesus, look at all the things that we've done. And he says, not so much. Look at what God has done. Look at what he's doing now. And friends, if we have been guilty of pride, if we've been guilty of thinking that we've done this on our own, if we have been guilty of asking that horrible question at times that we haven't done it that way before. We can look now with grace and look to grace and say that Jesus 
has done what we were unwilling to do. What we could not fulfill. He died on the cross in our place for our sin and rose from the grave. We couldn't do that. But God did that. And he has given that to us. Will we respond in belief? Will we respond in faith? Will we respond in trust? Will we repent? We can have grace in the church. We can have grace in our families, grace in our workplaces, grace in our relationships. Don't avoid the evidence of what God has done. And don't forsake the things that he has said. And don't do anything out of a fear of what others will say about you. Would you rather be faithful to God and be challenged or be faithful to yourself and never be in his presence? Are you trying to grow to be like Jesus and love others and love the Lord or are you trying to get noticed? Are you trying to do it on your own or are you willing to work with others and work with the Lord? One great way that we can respond to Jesus' authority this morning is through the Lord's Supper. And that's what we're going to have time to do as a church now. So we're gonna, I'm going to pray and then we'll lead into the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you that Jesus is in control, that he's in charge, and that he has worked in such a way that he has confronted our pride and our arrogance.